I want to uh, I want to begin by telling you a secret, if you don't mind. I see dead people. I see dead people everywhere I go. I uh, everywhere I look, people are flat out tired. They're exhausted. I see scared people, frustrated people, worn out people. I can see it in their eyes. I can see it in the mirror when I look back at my own reflection. I talk to my wife about it a lot. She thinks it's uh, mold in our house, is what she would say. Other people think it's gluten. Too much uh, overbreeding the hybrid grains. It's probably gluten. Might be the pesticides seeping into our skin, turning us into zombies. I don't know, whatever it is, doesn't it seem like everyone's so tired, like really tired? How do you feel these days? Are you, are you done with all the fighting, this COVID variant, mask war? Does it just tear you? I'm just tired of it. Do you feel like me? Like just burnt out to some degree. Burnout on life. Exhausted, overwhelmed. And it's tough, you know, it's tough trying to live with your neighbors these days. Everybody on Facebook's venting or on Twitter, they're ranting. Just enough of that stuff, that social stuff already. Or uh, just health problems. Everywhere you look, somebody is not doing well. And I got to be honest with you, winter in Michigan stinks. I've had it. I'm done with it. It's worse. It's worse than Cleveland, Ohio. And I thought Cleveland was bad. Michigan's bad. I, every time I get in the car, I think I'm going to drive into a 10-foot snowdrift. So I don't want to leave, you know? So when life saps your strength, and when it steals your courage, what do you do? do? Where do you go? How do you respond? I think there's two choices. You can engage or just quit. Just quit. Just be done. You know what? Honestly, I kind of liked the lockdowns for a while because um, gave you an excuse to sit at home and read and drink a lot of coffee and you didn't have to talk to anybody without feeling guilty. You know what I'm talking about? It's kind of nice for a while. Or I think if people were honest, I think some people like to wear masks because it, you know, they don't have to smile at anybody. And it keeps your face warm, but I think people like to kind of not, well, I, I don't understand what you're saying, so I can't talk to you right now. See you later. Six feet, six feet. You know, I think it's kind of nice. We like to isolate. Who doesn't need to escape? You know, I was thinking about it. You know what I really want? Here's what I really want. I want 10 weeks. 10, just 10, just give me 10 weeks. On an undisclosed beach off the coast of the French Riviera, sipping lemonade while my wife feeds me grapes and my kids fan me with a giant palm leaf. That's all I want. What's wrong with that? I'm tired. Did you know that Jesus felt like this a lot, many times in his life, where he was just done? Well, today we're going to open up to Matthew 14, and we're going to see one of those times when he had it. He wanted to get away. He wanted to isolate. And so the title today is basically, it's the story of the feeding of the 5,000. But before he fed the 5,000, he actually was intending to be alone. And it starts in Matthew 14, and we're going to go through verses 13 to 21. 
if you can follow with me. By the way, Steve Harrison, it's good to see you. Are you tired, Steve? You doing? Yeah, you, at least the guy's honest with me. It's good to see him. Here's begins in verse 13. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, and he healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and they said, "Uh, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away. Let them go to the villages and buy food themselves. But Jesus said, Oh, no, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, we only have five loaves here. And two, and I'm sure they said it like, two lousy fish. That's all we got. Verse verse 18, and he said, ah, bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowd to sit down on the grass. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and he said, a blessing. Then he broke the loaves, gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over, and those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. Some versions say not including the women and children, but if you did include the women and children, probably about 15,000 is what some scholars speculate. So this section opens up by saying that Jesus withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. The NIV says he withdrew by a boat privately to be alone at a solitary place. He just wanted to get away. He wanted to get away. Now, before we go into this, I just want to remind you, in Hebrews chapter 2, it says that Jesus shared in our humanity, which means he understands what it means to be human. He understands what it is to plot on this earth with clay feet. He understands the daily storms that you face. And he, too, had enough. He had enough. It kind of reminds me of the old James Taylor song that says, when this old world starts to get me down and people are just too much for me to face, I climb way up to the top of the stairs and all my cares just drift right into space. On the roof, it's peaceful as can be. And the song goes, and there the world below won't bother me. Well, Jesus didn't go up on a roof. He went into a boat. He went into a boat by himself to go to a solitary place. Why? Why? Well, one reason he's human, just like you and me. One reason he's had enough. But contextually, there's three reasons. The first reason is we just read Herod wanted to to murder him. He just killed his cousin, chopped his head off, John the Baptist. He was a prophet too, so now he probably wanted to get... Jesus. So Jesus left Herod's area and went to his brother Philip's tetrarch in Bethsaida. Also, 
since Matthew chapter 12, which was two, two chapters before this, the Pharisees wanted to kill Jesus. He's got like the whole community of Jews after him. They didn't like him either. So you can imagine how oppressive it must have been. Wherever Jesus went, somebody's mad at him and somebody wanted to kill him. Do you ever feel like that? Wherever you go, you're just threatened? Or you're scared of dying? A lot of people are scared of dying. It's crazy. It's crazy what people will do just to stay alive. Some people will disown their own family because they want to stay alive. Some people never leave their house. Some people will wear hazmat suits to walk their dog because they don't want to get sick. Because they're scared of dying. So you can imagine why Jesus would get away. People are after him. He wants to stay alive. But the third reason, in Luke's account, the disciples just got back from being sent out two by two. They went around Judea healing the demon-possessed. They healed sicknesses. And they shared the gospel or the kingdom of God. And so now they're coming back to Jesus. And I'm sure he just wanted to have a debriefing session with them. And just give them a chance to catch their breath from the rigors of ministry. Did you know ministering to people's needs and wants can be very exhausting? So Jesus hopped in a small boat, left the shores of Capernaum, and headed seven miles due east to Bethsaida. It was a remote area, a desolate seaside wilderness, far away from populated villages and cities. It was quiet, nestled tight on the gentle sloping hills that surrounded the shore of Galilee in a northeastern portion. To get to Jesus, his disciples had to walk seven miles by foot, but I'm sure they let him row alone just to give him some space. Give him some peace of mind. Could you imagine if you were Jesus rowing in that boat? If it was me, I would probably first paddle really far out. I'd paddle way out there. Then I'd take in the paddles. I'd lie down on my back and probably try to catch a couple winks. But I think I'd grumble. I'd say, God, I'm tired. I'm really tired. Why do you send me these people? They're driving me crazy. I can't take much more of this. I just can't take it. I can't take it. Have any of you said that in the last couple of years? I just can't take it. I can't take it. But notice something in the middle of verse 13. Middle of verse 13. But when the crowds heard it, the crowds, yeah, they followed him on foot from all the neighboring towns is the idea. Crowds, as we will see, includes everybody that lives around that area, even from Capernaum, including brothers, sisters, cousins, and even your hunchback, bald-headed uncle came out. They all came out. They all decided to take the seven-mile track to see Jesus too. Now look at this from Jesus' perspective. And here's how I imagine it. Have you ever had a much-needed vacation planned? I mean, you had it all planned out. You're looking forward to having a whole week off to do nothing but sleep, read, watch movies, and then you find out your in-laws are coming too? <laughs> what?! Or you tell somebody, you tell your neighbor, and they're going, we're going camping in the same place. In fact, we're two spots down. Hey, let's have a bonfire every night. 
And you go out in the backyard and you go, no, I want to be left alone. Leave me alone. Jesus had 15,000 people coming out to see him. That had to drive him crazy. So when Jesus is exhausted, wanting to get alone, wants to be by himself, and he has a massive crowd that wants his attention, what does he do? And I ask this because remember, in the book of 1 John, second chapter, sixth verse, John writes, whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus walked. So the question I'm going to propose is when you are flat out exhausted and people come to you wanting your help, how should you respond? Because I believe when we are the most tired, when we're our lowest, we automatically feel sorry for ourselves. We convince ourselves we deserve to be left alone. No, we need to be left alone. Get out. Send them away. And yet this says, the first thing Jesus does, is though he's exhausted, he still sees Look at verse 14. Verse 14. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd. And he had compassion on them. And he even healed their sick. The word Matthew uses is that, first of all, instead of looking inside in his exhaustion, he looked outside, noticed the conditions of others, and then he was filled with pity for them. The phrase for Greek scholars is in the aorist passive indicative tense, meaning that he instantly in that moment saw other people's pain. And when he saw their pain, pity welled up inside of him. And he had to do something. So here's what happened. He looks at this huge crowd. He looks at this huge crowd and he sees suffering, and he sees sick people, and he sees sad people. And it instantly causes him to forget his own exhaustion and to have love for others. That is so hard. This same phrase about having compassion is used also in Matthew about a father whose son was demon-possessed, and it says he was filled with compassion for his son. So could you imagine having your child filled with a demon? It would, I have to do something. It'd break my heart. That's how Jesus felt towards the people he saw in that moment. I have to do something. It breaks my heart. And the reason why it breaks his heart is they are his very own. He made every one of them. And he sees them. And he sees you right now. Jesus does not like any, he doesn't act like any celebrity or politician I know. In fact, that Jesus never put himself above the common person. Never. No, he's one of us. To him, even the smallest person matters. And then according to verse 14 at the end, he even healed them. Like he, he, he took care of them to the nth degree. So let me just take one second and ask you a question. This is, prob this is probably the hardest part. When you are bone tired and life seems unfair 
and everyone is expecting too much out of you, do you even see the pain of others or is everything always about you? Do you care about people or do you quit, run away and hide, close the door, lock it? I don't want to talk to anybody. I'll give you an illustration about something that happened to me this week. It's funny how when I'm about to preach, something happens, exactly what I'm going to preach about, and i got to deal with it. I don't like it when God does that. Anybody want to preach? I'll tell you. So here it is. This past Monday was Valentine's Day. So my wife and I left town to get away, and it was on my day off. And we simply wanted to have a nice romantic lunch together. Look over candlelight dinner. Remember when we were 24? We went to a hidden place deep in the heart of Grand Rapids. I don't want to tell you where it is, so you can't find us next time we go there. <laughs> so we sit down, and this waitress asks us where we're from. And we tell her, we're from way up north. We try to go to a remote place because people are super friendly up north. And when you're a pastor, they like to talk to you, share with you, get counseled by you, and they want to know if they need to do anything to stay out of hell. So that's why we left. You know, the everyday kind of conversation stuff a pastor has. So while we were sharing, while we were sharing that, she sat down and started sharing with us about her life while our food was getting made. My wife is really good with people like that. She listens and she keeps asking questions. Honestly, I want to be like, I want to, stop it, enough, enough. But she didn't see me. Cut it. I'm done. No more talking. But she kept talking. But from listening for the next 20 minutes, we learned everything about this person. How they haven't been to church in 25 years, how they're so scared of life from this COVID shutdown, how they almost lost their income in their job because of COVID shutdown. They're scared to go to sleep at night. They're trying to raise four kids out of wedlock and on and on and on it went. And how broken this person was. And after we were done, this person was even thinking about making the long trek to visit our church because she felt heard. And then she said, oh, I'm sorry. You wanted to get away and not counsel anyone, and here I tell you my whole life story. I think we needed to listen to her. I didn't want to engage. I didn't want to talk to anybody. But after we did, I realized this waitress is the exact person Jesus would talk to. Exactly. Like that lady by the well. And he sat there just to talk to her. Did you know people are dying just to be heard by someone? Anyone? By you? And once you start listening and having compassion for people, you begin to realize that most people have it way worse than you. The second thing Jesus does here is, um, so once Jesus sees he must do something, and this is where the story, I think, really gets hard. In order to help others, Jesus asks his disciples to get personally involved. Or you could say it like this. Jesus often seems to just ignore good old-fashioned common sense. And he asks disciples to help at their own expense. Let me show you verses 15 to 17. Now, when it was evening, 
the disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place. Jesus, this is, you know, the day's almost over. Send the crowds away to go into the village and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, and this was John, you'll know that a boy gave them five loaves and two fish. That's all we got. That's all we got. Five loaves and two fish. I'm sure the disciples didn't mind Jesus' initial compassion. It is when he involves them when problems arise. It doesn't make sense. He wants his disciples to take responsibility for the care of others, even when it seems like they don't take proper care of themselves. I think when problems arrive, it's natural to jump the logical conclusion of letting people, let's just let people who created the problem solve their own problem and leave me out of it. Leave me out of it. Send them home. In other words, this is probably what they're thinking. This group of people chose to follow without preparing. They ran headlong to follow Jesus and didn't even think ahead to the possible consequences. They need to pay the consequences of their own foolish decisions. I mean, they didn't even have to come at all. Who invited them? Reading from this text, it's the idea that verse 17, the disciples felt like that, those loaves and fishes that the boy gave, those are our loaves and fishes now. Why should we give those loaves and fishes? Those five loaves and two fish can really feed the 13, but that's about it. And now Jesus is taking from us, the group that is faithful to him, the group that knew what they are getting into, to waste it on a group that isn't thinking about anything at all. The crowd's pain is self-inflicted, and plus, the disciples didn't do anything wrong to have Jesus take from them or have, have Jesus make them solve the problem. doesn't seem fair. It is as if Jesus punishes those who are living right to help those who aren't. And he seems to do this all the time. Honest people just seem like they're the ones who have to pay the taxes. Good people must give out of their savings to help those who have squandered theirs. Tired parents are often asked to help in a nursery on Sunday when they just want to rest. Why does Jesus keep demanding from people who did nothing wrong and expect them to keep giving? Because he did for us. He did that for us. Plain and simple. He did nothing wrong. And yet he died on a cross. So I, the sinner, could be set free. One theologian calls this reckless obedience. Faith in Jesus asks the believer to do things that seem reckless. The action he wants us to take will often make zero sense, zero, but I obey because I trust him. And when I obey, he will usually, every time, do something good out of it, something beyond my wildest expectations. Let me give you some examples of what he asks of us. He asks us to tithe, give money to a church. When I can use that money for paying bills and I get nothing out of it. Meeting with that person that talks the whole time and always has problems. And then when I give them advice, they don't listen. And then they keep calling me for more advice. Why should I keep listening and trying when they never do what I want them to do in the first place? 
How about staying friends with people that vote and act and see life differently than mine? They don't change their opinion. When I argue politics, they don't change. I have to keep love them when they don't take my side? Or how about um, loving a child or a friend who keeps making decisions that are ruining their life and asking me to pick up the pieces every time they get into a bad scrape? Should I keep trying? It is exhausting forgiving people and trying again. But what happens, as we find here, when you finally do jump in and help, even though you don't feel like you can meet their needs, you don't have enough to give them, all you got are five loaves and two fish, Jesus still uses it. And he does miracles with it. I think Jesus sets up situations like this to show us our lack in order to reveal his fullness. We have this treasure in jars of broken pottery and jars of clay to show that his all-surpassing power is not from us. It's from God. It's from God. He asks us to get involved with the pain of the other, not because we can fix it, but because we can help lead people to the one who can fix it. And plus, I mean, if you just look at your own life, don't we need his help every single day? So who are we to judge those in need? I was once blind, and now I see. Which goes to the third thing that we're going to learn from here, and I love what happens next. So this feeding of the 5,000 is the single miracle that's in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's the only miracle that's repeated four times. By 5,000, that means they're only counting men. They didn't count women and children, so some scholars think it could be from 15,000, maybe 20,000 people were there. That's a huge crowd, huge, like massive. And listen what happens starting in verse 18. So Jesus said to the disciples, bring them here to me. Bring them here to me. That's the two loaves, I mean five loaves and two fishes. And he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and he said, a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples. Does that remind you of anything? Reminds me of something. I think I read it before somewhere. And the disciples gave them to the crowds and they all ate and were satisfied. And they looked up, they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. So, what is happening here? I think the third lesson we could see is that Jesus loves to. I mean, he loves to turn your wilderness. He loves to turn your lack. He loves to turn your inability into a victorious banquet. A rip-roaring banquet of joy. If you're familiar with the Old Testament biblical stories, this miracle is meant, first of all, to point back to an amazing miracle that happened in the wilderness wanderings. If you remember, when the Jews were escaping from the bondage in Egypt, they went out to the desert, Sinai Desert, and they were left there with no food to eat. They were hungry, starving, grumbling, 
And so what did God do? He sent this thing called manna. It's not just a little kid's story. Manna is actual bread from heaven. It tasted like honey. And so every day, for 40 years, every single morning, you'd probably wake up, rub your eyes, grab your basket, open the tent folds on the camp, and look out in your front yard, and there's honey wafers sitting there. And you'd pick them up and put them in your basket, enough for the day. Enough for the day. And it was good. The lesson of that is simple. And listen to this. Here's the, here's the lesson of manna. God will daily provide exactly what you need. God will daily provide exactly what you need. God will daily provide exactly what you need for that day. This miracle also points to a day in the future when all the people were once wilderness travelers with clay feet on this, on this broken earth will come to the mountain of God to feast. And just like that, we're going to sit down. It says he has them sit down. The Greek has the idea they're going to recline and they're going to picnic together. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. Having Jesus as your shepherd is incredible. It's a blast. He takes pain, hunger, and suffering and swallows it up and turns it into joy. And it says in verse 20, all ate. Every one of them. Every one of them ate. Every single person in the crowd. All 15,000 people ate and we're satisfied from that meager offering they all ate. Even the, probably the gluttonous guy, you know, who takes too much, he probably put a couple loaves in his coat, even ate all and was satisfied. I like how they say uh, in here that 12 baskets of bread were left over. When you read some scholars, they, they say this, well, you know why he had them gather 12 baskets to show that uh, Jesus wants you to be responsible with the resources he gives you because you know, waste not, want not. No, that's not why they had 12 baskets. They had 12 baskets to show us that God can do amazingly, abundantly, above anything you can ask for, hope, or think. All the time. All the time. The extra was gathered so you could see how he provides your daily needs. Because he's a good father. Imagine it with me for a second. Imagine this day. Let's say you are a mother of four children and you are living a hard, scrabble life in Capernaum. Your husband works the land and is barely making ends meet. Your youngest daughter has a fever. And your oldest son is lame. He is crippled and there's not much hope for him to get a job in the future. He's crippled. Your husband comes in and tells you to get all the kids into the wagon. You know, the one he uses to load his tools on to work during the week. It's a rickety old wagon. And he tells you to put the kids up there because you're going to be traveling seven miles east to go hear from this strange new prophet named Jesus. No, you say. No. You shout to your husband. 
That's crazy, you tell them. Not only will it be hard making a seven-mile track in the hot afternoon sun, but you've nothing to bring for the trip. It'll be a waste of time. And plus, I'm just so exhausted. I've got to take care of these four kids every day. I don't want to go on a trip. I don't care, says your husband. I heard he can do miracles. Even heals the sick. And boy, do we need a miracle. You heard of Jesus, so you dream a little, but it just sounds too good to be true. Every time you get your hopes up, something always goes wrong. It's just better to stay put at home, just wallow in misery. It's so much easier. But your husband insists, so you grumble as you pack the rickety old wagon and put your kids in it to make the long two-and-a-half-hour journey down a small dirt path to nowhere. It is getting late in the afternoon when you arrive, and you wonder why you took your husband's Silly advice, honey, this is stupid. We're going to be stuck out here. And look how dark it's getting. It's getting late. You breathe a heavy sigh, take a spot in the middle of the large crowd on a piece of dry grass. As you lay out a blanket, people around you start pointing down to a small figure near the shore. A single fishing boat is there with a man pulling on a rope to bring his craft up to rest on the sand. Your husband stands up and says, that's him. That's him. Look. It's him. I'm going to see him. If it's the last thing I do, I'm going to go see him. He grabs your son and hoists him high up on his shoulders and takes your daughter by the hand and heads towards Jesus. What are you doing? Sarah is too sick to walk all the way down there. And, and look at the crowd. You'll never get to him. He's too important for you. I don't care. I'm going. You watch him leave as you warily lay out a few more blankets and give some dried figs and nuts to the other kids while you wait. You keep watching your husband in the distance and you notice he makes it through the crowd and is talking directly to Jesus. Your heart skips. But it's too far away to hear or see what is going on. Nervously you stand up to try to get a better view, but the crowd by this time is too thick for you to see your husband and two kids. All of a sudden... A young boy is running to you, arms up high, waving. Mom, Mom, look, I can run. That amazing man healed me. You notice that his little sister's running too, trying to catch up to him. She too is smiling, looking healthier than ever. Your husband's speechless. And you can tell he's trying to hold back tears, wiping his eyes with the end of a sleeve. Soon you see the disciples telling people to sit down and relax. Everyone's eyes are on Jesus. And then he lifts up a few loaves of bread, breaks them, hands them to two of his disciples, who breaks them, and hands them to two people, who breaks them, and hands them to two more people, who breaks them, and hands them to two more people, so on and so forth. A whole loaf of bread makes it to your family, and a half of fish makes it as well. You break the loaf in half, give it to your son and your daughter. Your son breaks it in half, gives it to his other sister who breaks the loaf in half. And then your son, Mom, how much of this can I eat? Just keep breaking and passing it and eat. See how long it lasts you. I don't know. An hour later, your family says they are completely stuffed. 
something you never remember them saying before. And you notice there are two pieces of bread still sitting on a blanket. Honey, you say to your husband, bring this remainder back to the helpers of Jesus. I'm sure there's still some more people who can use it. You watch your husband bring the remaining pieces and he soon comes back. You ask him, how did it go? It's the craziest thing, he says. Everyone, everyone is satisfied. And there are huge baskets left over. I'm not sure how they brought all that bread here. It would have taken a large barge to bring it here. And then you look up and you see Jesus and you say in your heart, He did it. You know, it's crazy. I met Jesus 33 years ago, and he's still doing it. I needed him to fix my life and my situation. I was exhausted, and he restored my soul. Every time I think I've had it with life, I'm done. It's over. He brings someone my way who has it worse. He invites them to sit, and he asks me to help them. And he trusts, and I trust that he will fix it. Because, you know what? He keeps doing it and doing it. And it doesn't ever stop. And I'm satisfied. 